Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Lauren, bringing you this episode. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Richard Miles was wrongfully accused at the age of 19 and spent 15 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. With the help of Centurion, the first organization dedicated to seeking freedom for the innocent in prison, Richard was exonerated. In this talk, Richard, who is now founder and executive director of Miles of Freedom, is joined by Kate German, senior advocate and investigator at Centurion. They discuss Richard's story, his road to freedom, and their mission to help others. This is Richard Miles, from prisoner to CNN hero. Wow. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who is in the room here today and watching the video online. I'm Fizz, sitting here with Richard Miles and Kay Germond. And you know, before we get started, it truly is such an honor to be here with the both of you. Uh, the two of you have had such remarkable experiences tied to the innocence movement and continue to do outstanding work to free innocent people for, from prison. So Google is lucky to have you here today. We have a lot to learn from both of your stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Richard, you're the founder and executive director for Miles for Freedom. Kate Germond, you are the senior advocate investigator for Centurion, uh, just for a way of introduction. And you know, to get started, Richard, I know that you've, you were arrested for a crime that you did not commit, and you were in prison for 15 years. Yes, sir. And I presume that most of the times you sit down for a conversation like this, people start at the story of Richard Miles from the point you were arrested. Right. But let's let's take a step back and start before that. You know, what was your life like before any and all of this went down? What were your interests? Yes. What were your dreams for the future? What type of people did you surround yourself with? Right, so um, I'm, I'm totally honored to be here. Thank you, um, Fizz, uh, Google, the Google world, uh, for just allowing us this platform. Uh, so I'm from Dallas, Texas, and for me, uh, my growing up was very family-oriented. Um, I oftentimes joke and say uh, we was raised up under the church, so <laughs> church was like my life. My mom and dad, they emphasized it a lot. I have two younger brothers and one older sister. Um, I went to Skyline High School, which was uh, back in those days, it was a very prestigious high school. Uh, I studied everything from um, plastics technology to cinematography. I fell in love with plastics technology. Uh, what I loved about it was learning the different types of plastics, you know, thermosets and thermoplastics. I did not know that there was two different types, and I understood that a thermoset plastic can be shaped one time, and it doesn't matter how much heat you apply to it, it's just set in that position. Versus a thermoplastic, you can apply heat to it, and it can be shaped in so many different phases and stages, and I took that as life. 
Sometimes we are placed in situations that are just thermoset situations, and it doesn't matter how much heat you apply to it, how much anger or aggression, it is what it is. And then you have those thermoplastic things where you have to apply that energy to it, and, and you can transform it, you can change it. And so that's, what, that's my life growing up. As a, a young man growing up in Dallas, Texas, uh, it was um, sometimes it was changes that I could do. And sometimes I was put in situations that I had to accept. That's my life. Who knew you could sound so poetic about plastic? plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I need, I need, He's I need a preacher, plastic. actually. Yeah. <laughs> I need to be a marketer for plastics. I can sell plastic. <laughs> but yes, yes. That, so that's, that's my life, you know. Um, I grew up in the church. You know, church was a very uh, ingrained piece of me, which was very uh, influential, uh, important after uh, I got incarcerated. Yes. Now, let's talk about the actual night when you got arrested. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you were doing leading up to that moment and yeah. what exactly happened during and immediately after your arrest. Right. So I was 19 years old, uh, May 15, 1994. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday um, because it was actually the last day that Richard Ray Miles Jr. to me was alive. After that day, I died and I turned into what the system actually allowed me to grow into. Uh, and so May, before May 15th, you know, um, I was aspiring to go to TSTC in Waco, which was the Plastics Engineering College. Um, I had called one of my friends. I stayed in Oak Cliff, which was a neighborhood in Dallas. Um, and we drove to I was in Oak Cliff and we drove to North Dallas. That's where I had my house at. And my friend, he. His girlfriend stayed right around the corner from me, and I paid him $5 to drive from Oak Cliff to North Dallas. We get to her house first. I got out, walked the rest of the way. I walked up University to Lemon Avenue, which is streets in North Dallas by the Love Field Airport area. I remember going in front of the Sewell Cadillac shops, and it's probably about 1.30ish, 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the street kind of veers off, um, and I stopped at a payphone. So that tells you how long ago this was. <laughs> so I stopped at a payphone to call my friend to tell him, I say, hey, man, I'm right across the street. Um, I'm getting ready to come home. Can you cut the alarm off? Hung up the phone, crossed the street. I noticed a police car just sitting idle on the side of the road, didn't pay any attention to the police car, walked by it. I hear a helicopter uh, in the sky and the light shines on me. Um, and I look up, I didn't take off running because I hadn't done anything. Um, but next thing I noticed, police cars came from everywhere. And um, I'm 19 years old and they're screaming, get on the ground, get on the ground. So I laid on the ground, I'm complying to all of the rules. Um, I'm handcuffed. Uh, and they read me my Miranda rights and they put me in a police car. When I get in the back of the police car, I'm telling the arresting officers, I'm like, hey, man, my friend just dropped me off. He's right around the corner. You can go and talk with him. Uh, very, very much silence from the arresting officers. Uh, and I was told that when I got to uh, downtown, I could tell the detective everything. And um, if I was telling the truth, I would be let, uh, I would be released. We made a stop 
before we got downtown. We stopped at a Texaco, and I didn't know, but this was the scene of the crime. This was the crime scene. They took me out of the police car. Um, hundreds of people was um, behind this Texaco, in front of the Texaco, and they did a gunshot test on my hands. I didn't know what it was at that point in time, but that's what they did. Put me in the police car, took me to homicide. When I got to homicide, the detective came in. I gave the detective Ernest's phone number. Ernest was the guy that drove me from Oak Cliff to North Dallas. Ernest's mom's number, that's who apartment we was over. Betty, Betty was my girlfriend. She stayed in the apartments. Carla was Ernest's girlfriend. She knew we was driving from Oak Cliff to North Dallas. And then James was the guy that I had a house with in North Dallas. I gave this detective all of those people's phone numbers. He went out, called them, stayed gone for about six or seven hours, came back in and said, Richard, all of your alibis checked out, but we have a witness that say they saw you kill one person and shoot another person, and you're gonna be arraigned for murder and attempted murder. And so at the age of 19, I was arraigned. My bond was set at $350,000 for a murder and attempted murder that I had no knowledge of. That's that's a hard story to hear. I mean, hearing about what your life was leading up to that moment, such a promising future, going to technical school, assuming, you know, supporting your family, moving forward, it's it's very troubling. Yes, yes. Now, Kate, looping you in here, the first time you heard of Richard's arrest and the details of his story, what stood out to you? Are there any... Like, were there any red flags that jumped right out when you first heard how he got arrested or the the kind of earlier stages of his case? Yeah, Richard's case, well, let me back up just a tiny bit. Centurion, the organization I work with, um, who worked to free Richard, um, is the first innocence organization in the world. And it was started in 1980 with a man named Jim McCluskey, who happened to listen as part of his seminary work, listen to an inmate, tell him that he was actually innocent, and um, surprisingly, Jim came to believe him, got his entire record, read it, was sure that he was innocent, and wound up committing to him, using his own money, got him exonerated within three years. And once Jim graduated from seminary a year later, he decided this was going to be his life's work, and he'd already started working on yet another case at the time. And I joined Jim in 1987 when he got national attention for the first time for his work on behalf of wrongly convicted people. And my job primarily was, especially in the beginning, was just to read and respond to the requests for help, start developing cases, and um, and then my deal with Jim was um, when we were able to hire somebody else to work with us, I, I could try my hand at investigations, and if I was any good at it, um, I could, uh, that could be my job, along with continuing to develop cases. And it turns out I'm pretty good at it. So, um, and I love it. Um, so um, when Richard's case arrived, um, first of all, Richard had um, the remarkably good fortune to have the woman who um, worked up his case was extremely annoying. When she had a case there where she believed somebody was innocent, she was like a dog on a bone, and you heard about it 
from the first letter, and every time a new letter came, a new police report came, she was in my office with Richard Miles' case, more information. And one of the things that struck us immediately about Richard's case was, here's a man, a, a young man, who had no prior criminal record, no relationship at all with, with law enforcement, and he goes from that to killing somebody in a, in a gas station, you know, with people around, well, just killing somebody, period. Um, it just seemed improbable, and on top of it all, the description of the, the uh, shooter did not match him at all, everything from clothing to age uh, to skin color. Um, and so right away we were intrigued and, um, you know, that was the thing that sort of caught me about Richard. Now, I didn't work on his case. Jim McCluskey, the founder, had a thing about Texas cases. So if there was a Texas case we were going to take on, he was going to work on it. He actually walked a person off of death row in the early 90s, Clarence Branley, and freed a woman named Joyce Ann Brown, who will also dovetail into either Richard's story or my story of Richard. <laughs> um, so that's us. Oh. With Richard. <laughs> and then we committed to him, and then Richard can talk about what it was like to have, to meet Jim. Yeah. Yeah, Richard, how, how did you come about Centurion? How did you learn about the organization? Oh, yeah, yeah that's... What was your you first go. conversation like? So, my first conversation about Centurion actually happened on Cofield Unit. <clears throat> so, I went to jury trial, seven-day jury trial, evidence comes out, um... 10 witnesses, nine of them said I was not the shooter. Um, no gun was found in my case. All of my alibis came to testify. Uh, the description of the shooter was 6264, real dark complected. I'm 5758, light skinned. Uh, but anyway, the one witness and the gunshot residue test came back positive in the palm of my right hand, but negative anywhere else. And by the way, gunshot residue, notoriously unreliable. Yes. We know a lot more about it today than we did when they did his, although, of course, they knew it was unreliable. True. And we didn't have the resources to refute the evidence that was entered at the point in time. And so a six-day jury trial ended up with 60 years in the Texas Department of Corrections. Uh, so I was found guilty on a Friday. The, uh, the, the judge held special court on a Saturday. Uh, so I was given 40 years for a murder, 20 years for uh, attempted murder, and I was 20 years old. So that was like my birthday present uh, for a lack of better um, words. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm, I'm escorted from Dallas, Texas to the prison system at Tennessee Colony, Texas. And I, I, I'm, I'm assigned to Cofield Unit. Cofield Unit is one of the biggest prisons in Texas. Now, Texas itself has 91 state prisons. These are prisons that are ran by the state of Texas. This is not the federal prisons, nor is this is the holdovers. These are state prisons. And so I'm on Cofield Unit, one of the biggest prisons, and I meet a guy that's cutting her. This gentleman's name is Ben Spencer. And Benjamin Spencer is on uh, Centurion's caseload. He's an innocent man that's been locked up perpetual over hot, hard. 30 years. He's been locked up over 30 years, and he cuts her on Cofield unit. So now imagine I'm, I'm going into this unit. I'm thinking that I'm the only innocent person that's ever been uh, wrongfully convicted. I'm like, oh, my God, this is, this is a tragedy. And I meet this guy who's 
are cutting her and he's innocent. And so he's asking everybody in the barbershop, hey, what are you in here for? And, and so I tell him, I said, man, I'm innocent. I'm from Dallas. I said, man, they say I killed somebody. He pulls me to the side. He say, if you're really innocent, you need to write this organization, Centurion. He said, they are working on my case. He said, man, I should be one of the next people that's being released on actual innocence. I got the letter, man, uh, I'll never, never forget 1997. I wrote him a letter and I got a very generic letter back and was basically stating due to the overwhelming responses of <laughs> I think it was signed Kate. <laughs> but you couldn't but read the signature. Yeah. Right? But it said due to the overwhelming responses of actual innocence, it takes us a minimum of, of 10 years before we're able to get a person's case. Well, I was just given 60 years. So 10 years out of 60 years, that at least gave me hope. And that's very important. That's, I think, if I can leave some tidbits with you guys, writing somebody incarcerated is about the best thing that you can do because you're giving them hope. You're giving them something that's real, something that's tangible. And so I get this letter back and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to write you for 10 years. And so I began a, a very long dialogue um, between myself and my caseworker, but I'm writing other people as well. I was eventually encouraged to start studying because once my direct appeal was denied in Texas, you now are a lawyer. And so I had to file my own writ of habeas corpus 1107. I had to study Strickland versus Washington, Herrera versus Collins, Brady versus Maryland. I mean, I had to digest all of this legal jargon in order to continue my fight. Now, that was denied because I could not, my family did not have the resources to pay for my transcripts. So now you're talking about some systemic stuff that goes on within the institutions. So that was denied because we did not provide extra record evidence. And that continued my correspondence with Centurion. And in 2007, 2007, we were on lockdown on Cofield Unit. And uh, the mail lady came by and asked for my TDC number. I gave her my TDC number and they rolled kind of like the cell door and pushed these boxes in. And I got off my bunk and I opened up the box and it was my transcripts. Centurion had purchased my transcripts and within the transcripts was a letter of acceptance of my case. And now 2007 was 13 years after I had been incarcerated, wrongfully incarcerated. And it seemed like that was a new day for me. That October of 2007 was a new day. I began to read the transcripts, read the police records, and eventually I would meet Mr. Jim McCluskey, Powell Henderson, and Cheryl Watley in January of 2008. Wow. Paul Henderson was the man who actually won a Pulitzer for his investigative work on behalf of a wrongly convicted man named Stephen Titus in the state of Washington. He became an investigator with us, and... Um, and Cheryl Watley is his attorney and was, has been the attorney on a number of our cases and Texas cases. And, and let me just back up just a hair. Ben Spencer, uh, the New Yorker just recently did an article about his case a couple of months ago. And we won a retrial for Ben. He, um, based on actual innocence, he had a, a, a trial before a judge with a jury. Um, and he was found not guilty. And the, or no, not with a jury, just a judge trial. And the, um, the judge found him actually innocent. 
And um, in Texas, the prosecutor can appeal it right away, which of course they did. And um, um, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is a really, really difficult mountain to climb uh, to get a, them to agree that somebody's innocent, um, you know, refused to accept the judge's verdict. And so Ben Spencer to this day is still in prison. We're still fighting for him. We've hopefully found some more DNA evidence to test, but Ben is our perpetual heartache. He's a, like Richard, no prior criminal record, decent guy, just plucked out of the sky because he, you know, was black and there, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, you've been working with these cases for so long and case after case after case. To what extent is this overwhelmingly affecting communities of color versus not? Like, if you could shed some light there, or both of you. In my opinion, I'm much more sour than Richard is. Richard's a much nicer pe person than I am, and our exonerees are the nicest people you could ever meet. They aren't angry, they're, um, they're not mad at anybody. I'm mad at everybody. I'm mad at every single person who was mean to them, who sent them, who fingered them, who gave them crappy lawyering, the prosecutors who lied and put bad witnesses on, and then everybody who denied them all the way up the, the, the line. I am furious with all of them. And so they're much nicer than I am, but I don't even remember the question. <laughs> I'll pick it up. The disparities. <laughs> That's why we make a good combination here. So Kate has the, the space to be angry and I have to be a little bit more. Uh, White focused. privilege, I'm aware of it. Yeah, so I mean, I mean re reality is, and I think society knows that is is a very high, highly dis disproportionate for African-Americans and minorities dealing with the criminal justice system. I mean, you go all the way back to Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, the system was just internally set up to capture, for a lack of better words, to capture uh, African Perfect words. You know, and, and that system just has just continuously perpetuated. Brian Stevenson said it best, it didn't end, it evolved. It became um, a lot so more sophisticated. When you look at um, wrongful incarcerations, you, especially Dallas, I mean, you look at, uh, we had like 60 something people that's been exonerated, and I believe 53 of those 60-some individuals are all African-Americans. Um, Nationally-wise, I go to national innocent conferences, so there are innocent conferences every year. This year it's gonna be in Chicago. You go to these events and, and you see the impact of wrongful incarceration and you see the magnitude of how many people are wrongfully incarcerated, but you see the distinguishing characteristic that there are a lot of men men, and there are a lot of African-Americans that are impacted by the um, wrongful incarceration. So that's what I see. Uh, and incarcerated, the disparities of people incarcerated is just as much um, parallel to those that are wrongfully incarcerated. Makes me wonder, I mean, you are one of the symbolic, fortunate ones who have yeah. survived the system and found a way to come out. Yes. And it just makes me wonder, how many countless others are there in the system that we're completely blind to? Yeah, um, you know, uh, I think Jim McCluskey um, says it best. I think it's like 1% or 
10%? Well, we stopped putting a percentage on it, but the innocence movement puts 5 to 10% of the prison population, which when you consider that it's over 2 million people, I mean, holy mackerel, three people <laughs> ate bad aspirin and, you know, it got Tylenol and it, you got removed from the shelves. You know, airlines crash and the planes are, you know, grounded and, and it goes on and on, but wrongfully convicted people. Yeah. It's actually more difficult today for us to free an innocent person than it was when Jim started the work in 1980. The court's response to um, wrongful convictions, another, you know, petition is holy mackerel. They're going to get out, and so they keep creating laws to make it more and more and more difficult for us to free innocent people. If you don't have DNA, and most of our cases are not DNA cases, most of our cases are field investigation cases, we take the hard cases. We take the cases other projects, you know, re reject. And, um, I mean, we freed 64 people, but... Um, we have a drawer, we have 30 cases sitting in a drawer waiting for us. We're working on 25 cases, but the work is overwhelming and it takes years and years and years to get somebody exonerated. Richard's case was unusual in that one of the things we do just routinely is we file for Freedom of Information Act requests for documents from the various divisions that had their fingerprints on, on a particular case. And... Um, in Richard's case, um, we wound up getting a police report that um, his lawyer had never seen, and um, it was the eyewitness saying, you know, Richard wasn't the man he saw when he went to, and then he went to trial and testified Richard was the man he saw, and we knew that was um, a Brady violation and um, a withholding of um, of uh, exculpatory evidence from the defense. And, um, and so we also brought it to the prosecutor who at that time was being very open to DNA cases. Uh, his name was Craig Watkins and he was freeing a lot of people through DNA testing, allowing DNA testing to go forward and get people exonerated. And we brought him this case and thank goodness he was, he hated the prosecutor who worked on Richard's case. And so he was happy to throw him under the bus with this um, exculpatory document. So Richard is the only person this particular prosecutor um, um, allowed, you know, joined us in um, that wasn't a DNA case. And that's how we got Richard freed. Wow. Yeah. But, but, you know, Richard has a happy ending and, you know, he had parents who loved him and supported him and, and visited him regularly. Very unusual for incarcerated folks. Um, but he also lost his father before we could get him out. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's another phenomena in wrongful convictions is not only do I, we lose our exonerees once they get freed at a much younger age than we should, but... Their family members, you know, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents, they all die much younger than they should. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, 15 years behind bars, and again, for a crime that you did not commit, can't even fathom the challenges you had to navigate through right. during those 15 years. Um, to the extent that is comfortable for you to share, you know, what helped you get through yeah. 
year after year after year of waiting, what allowed you to hold on to hope and keep fighting? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, when I went to prison, I, I, I did not know anything about the life in prison. Uh, I think one of the, 19 years old. 19, right. And I think one of the best movies that was ever put out was Shawshank Redemption. When you look at how this movie was written, but if you've been in prison and you understand how when Andy comes out, he wasn't given a rule book of how to survive in prison or what to do or what not to do. The rule book is just being aware and awoke of your environment and your surroundings. And that's what society is not aware and awoke of their environments and their surroundings. And so they get, they get caught up in stuff. Uh, for me, first and foremost, my, my family was a very uh, integral part and piece of my incarceration. They uh, made sure they came to see me once a month. Uh, my dad, my dad passed six months before I got out. He, he died of cancer. Uh, the last time I saw my dad was in uh, December of 2007, 2008, excuse me, 2008, because I got out in 2009. And to see this, this humongous guy, just see, to see this disease just eat at him away and, you know, they walk out and I walk in, you know, that was a very uh, overwhelming experience to uh, go through. But their presence uh, was very much a part of my fight because I knew I was innocent. I was really fighting for them. You know, my family was destroyed by me going to prison. Innocent or guilty, families are destroyed when you incorporate institutions like the prison system to the magnitude that it's incorporated. Uh, my spiritual um, essence. Um, I didn't like going to church every day, but when I got locked up, you know, you kind of you, you have to search for this this power um, that's greater than you because what you can do is limited. And, and so after you file your writs of appeal and after you written the letters to all of these people, you now have to trust that you threw stuff out there in the energy or in the sky, whatever you want to refer to it as, and it's going to resonate, it's going to come back to you. And so my spirituality uh, was very important. My education, um, there are a lot of people that's incarcerated and uh, they're not, um, they didn't graduate from high school, you know, so their education level isn't what it should be. And when you're not educated to a, a certain degree, the smallest thing can shake you. And so I, I had an educational uh, uh, foundation. And I think the last thing was meeting so many people that was innocent on Cofield. And so outside of Ben Spencer, Christopher Scott, Victor Thomas, Andre Carrage, um, Stephen Phillips, uh, all of these men were on Cofield and we were all innocent. And if you look them up, all of the names that I just named have been released and they've been exonerated. Ben Spencer is the only one that's still there. But I met so many men in the law library talking about they was innocent. And we were also it's a cohort internally in the prison. And these were the people that I began to associate with because this was my family. When my dad died. I didn't cry on the shoulders of my mom. I cried on the shoulders of our quote unquote drug dealers and murderers and killers, men that had been broken and placed in a system for rehabilitation, but there was no rehabilitation now. Wow. That's remarkable. 
Now, we actually have a photo, if, if we can pull up the next slide. Uh, would you like to describe the audience yeah. what is happening, <laughs> this image right over here? Yeah, this was my first walk out. Um, behind me, first and foremost, um, obviously, is Mr. James or Jim McCluskey. Um, my mom is to my immediate left. I'm not sure what you guys are looking at, but she's to my left. In my hand is everything that I had. That was me. That's all my property. Um, what's, what's in that bag is really my pictures and my legal work. That's all I brought out of prison. Um, and to the other side is Cheryl Watley. You can see her arm. Um, she was the attorney that was um, retained through our bicenturion. Um, if you look at my face, I, you know, coming out of prison after you from 19 to 34. So I'm 34 years old in this picture. And all I knew was prison. And so my wife will tell you my pictures back then, my eyes were blank. It was nothing in my eyes because it, it was nothing now. Everything that I knew had just been taken away, i.e. prison. And so the structural living, get up, you go work in the fields, go to breakfast, you come back, you go, that was gone. So your freedom can become a prison if you don't understand how to navigate through it. So, I mean, I'm really scared. I'm literally petrified. But if not for the sake of being a chameleon, <laughs> I mean, you have to navigate just like that. So that's what that picture is. Wow. Kate, how do people fare kind of coming out of prison uh, from your the cases that you've worked on? And of course, Richard, I'd like to hear your experiences as well, mm -hmm. kind of how you oriented yourself and how it felt to be part of society again, as we know it. You want to go first? Um, well, one of the things that we've been, um, when Jim started the work uh, of freeing wrongly convicted people, his belief was Centurion was to get people exonerated, the end. And when I started working with him and getting to know folks while they were still incarcerated and then some of the folks that had been already been freed, I realized that there had been a lot of damage done to them psychologically. And I felt that we should endeavor also to help them succeed once they're out. And um, over time and through creative Bookkeeping, um, I, you know, we managed to um, start figuring out ways to support these folks because they are extremely damaged. Um, they have post-traumatic stress, for starters. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh, what's it called, this, about the Central Park Five, When They See Us, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. It's the most realistic portrayal I've ever seen of what it's like for uh, an innocent person to come home. Um, you know, they're living with their families, but it, they're actually in hell. It's chaotic. Um, generally, as a rule, um, families expect um, the exonerees, okay, you're out. You're fine. You know, get over it. You know, go get a job. You know, uh, stop moping around. Stop. Leave your room. Um, I mean, everybody has all kinds of different ways to respond to it. So one of the things that we've now developed and we're getting quite good at it and we'll get better and better as we can get more money, um, is to come alongside these guys, um, 
you know, when they're incarcerated, but then especially once they're out. Um, we're their family. I've instilled in the exonerees that you're family. We're your family and your family to each other. And one of the greatest things that's happened that I've learned about through time is that these guys have taken it to heart. And, you know, all of them have somebody they, they talk with regularly. And I especially encourage the guys that have recently gotten out to, you know, know that these um, more mature exonerees are your brothers and sisters and they're your mentors and you can call them. They understand. You can call me too, but all I can do is be sympathetic. I'm woefully insufficient with anything that's going to be constructively helpful. Whereas, um, you know, exoneree to exoneree, I mean, just, I don't have to explain it. It's obvious why that works better. And so they're suffering, but, you know, everybody can mask it. Um, they, almost all of them self-medicate, probably not Richard, but, um, you know, because, you know, damage was done to them and not much was done by the system that did it to him to make any sort of compensation, to make any sort of recompense for what they did to these folks. In fact, some states have no compensation. A lot of states have compensation that's a joke. Very few states have compensation. New York does and Texas have the best um, in terms of acknowledging um, that a wrong was done to this population. But that's only kind of the beginning. I think, um, you know, coming alongside them, I think is very helpful. Most of our guys do really well. Um, in the beginning, it's a little rough, but you know, they do really well. Um, we've only had a few that have had big struggles, but you should also know that most of our guys had no prior criminal record. Um, so, you know, they were just plucked from the system, and I don't know if that makes it even worse for them in terms of suffering. Um, and the few guys that did have little burgeoning criminal records, um, it was nothing, um, um, no felonies, but um, you know, when they were wrongly convicted, they took a good inventory of their life and said, holy mackerel, I need to make some changes, and they made really dramatic changes. And I guarantee if you met our guys, you can't tell who had a criminal record and who didn't. Um, they're all just these absolutely, unbelievably remarkable people, but um, they struggle. Yeah. I mean, you know, to that point, it to understand where we came from is kind of like you understand the struggle. Uh, so particularly for me, I like, think like the first four or five years in prison, I worked in the fields. All right, it's, it's not a lot of educational experience that's given to a person that's chopping grass or picking sweet potatoes or cotton or something like that. Uh, and let's say that I would have paroled out right after I worked in the fields. What type of job skill sets did I inherit did the system teach me? The people that get incarcerated nine times out of 10, they never worked, and so you're put into an institution that doesn't incorporate good work ethics. And so now you're talking about what have you released to society? And so you're talking about the transition from prison to society. When I got out, um, I didn't really know who I was because I had been told to do everything. I had been told what to eat. I had been told when to eat. When I went to prison, I had just bought a beeper 
when I got out, my beeper was still in my property, but who's going to beat me now? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't even think, it, I had just bought this beeper. It was an NEC beeper. It was like small and blue and bleep, bleep. I had a flashback. It was PTSD. Sorry. But you try to make light of a situation that you don't understand. And, and for me, that's what I look at um, coming out of prison, you know, technology. There is no introduction to the Internet in prison. Yet it's still when you get out, every job application is done on the Internet. So what are we doing as a system, as a society? And, and the only thing that we can do great is give people expectations that come out of prison. We're not implementing any resources, but we're great at giving us, we are great at exuding expectations with no resources. And so for me coming home from prison, you know, it, it was hard. Uh, I moved back in with my mom. Do you know what that's like at the age of 34 and you got to move back in? And she's really religious. Yeah. And I adore his mother. She's the funniest woman you'd ever meet, but holy she mackerel, told me. she's fierce. My mom said, baby, baby, where's, oh, baby, where? <laughs> Come home. She said, you don't have no curfew, but you can't stay out all night. <laughs> I'm missing something right now. I don't. So I still haven't figured it out, so I had to get my own apartment. Yeah. But, you know, I was just through into what we call society, and, and I had to be vulnerable enough to say I need help. Mm. And, and the, the average person that comes home from prison after you've been through that experience Innocent or guilty, vulnerability is not an emotion. It's not a space that you are willing to put yourself in. And when you're coming home from prison, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. And, and that's a scary place to be in. Wow. Richard, your story is just remarkable. And you're, you both are truly our heroes for what you both have been through and the work that both of you do. Um, I want to open up uh, to audience questions as we do. I think we have a short video that we can play. And while the video is playing, if you would like to participate in the conversation, please line up in either of the mics. And we'll start those questions right after the video. I was in prison for 24 years, wrongfully. 29 years and like eight months. Nine years, five months, and 24 days. 27 years. 15 years. 18 years. 10,000 days for nothing. Our criminal justice system is supposed to be the best in the world? Nonsense. What the hell does that mean? Like, I'm probably the angriest woman on the earth because of what I know and my intimate knowledge of the people who've been wrongly convicted. There's lots of bad convictions out there. You get police officers that misbehave, you get prosecutors that misbehave, and you get lawyers that don't do their job because there's so many cases coming down the pike. Justice gets lost in the process. Every single one of our clients, it was fair for them to speak to our folks. But immediately, it, was, it should have been very evident to them that they had the wrong person. But rather than move on, they stuck with that person because that was an easier path. They knew that I was not that person. There was no point in going after another suspect. 
And so they brought me into the system. No motive, no ballistics, no DNA, no weapon, no confession, no fingerprint. Nothing connected me with the exception of two snitch witnesses. They planted evidence. They withheld evidence. They literally paid people, coerced people, and threatened people in them to lie. The prosecutor told him, said, listen, if you say that's the guy, you're facing 11 years. I'm the prosecutor in your upcoming case in court, and I can guarantee you won't do the 11 years if you just say that's the guy that shot you. The prosecutor took my picture out of his pocket, and he said, this is Richard Miles. He's going to be sitting next to his lawyer. When you go in, I'm going to ask you, do you see the person that did the shooting? Just point to Miles. I had a three-day trial, and I was convicted in less than an hour. It's all about putting it, putting, putting it in the win column, you know? Don't, don't think about it too much. Your job is to get a conviction. End of story. We've been the last hope for a lot of these men and women. These are inmates who have been through the entire court system. Their appeals have been heard. Their post-conviction relief petitions have been heard. And they have nowhere else to turn. When we take on these old cases, what we're looking for is new evidence um, that is described legally as evidence not available at the time of the trial. Most of the cases we take on are field investigation cases, and therefore that means they're going to take longer than a DNA case. Because judges are very comfortable reversing the conviction of a case where science says this person is innocent, it becomes much more difficult when they don't have that hinge to hang on. And you have to really pull the case apart and reconstruct it. And that's what Centurion does. Centurion went back and they discovered, they looked at all the records and all the files and investigated and found all the information that was hidden from, uh, from the courts. They give you the word that they're going to work on your case and they'll, until they get you out. And they're not going to leave no stone unturned. Now, had all that information been presented in the initial trial, I would have never gone to prison. When I was sentenced, I had two infant children. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but when I was sentenced, I had two infant children, and my wife was pregnant with my third son. And the day I walked out of jail, my kids were 29 and 28. And his district attorney said, well, good luck with that. I went in, my daughter was nine, she was 21 when I come out with the baby. I had a stepson that took a 38 and blowed his brains out while I was in prison and couldn't come home to see him laid to rest. I, I ceased to exist as a person once the handcuffs was put on me. Richard Miles, he died in 72-87-16. That was the number I had to go by. That's who lived for those 15 years. This is the stuff that keeps me up at night, is knowing that the, there are these people in prison, and we're it. We're the end of the line. And, you know, we, we take that responsibility very seriously, very seriously. When you meet these folks, you can't help but think, holy mackerel, that could have been my son, my brother, my father, my sister, my mother. It never occurs to anybody that these guys would be that ordinary. And that's what 
in a way makes them extraordinary. Real powerful stuff. In the five minutes that we have left, let's go to audience questions. We can start over here and we'll just keep alternating sides. Hi, my name is JQ. Um, when you think about the criminal punishment system and like innocent people, right? That's just a small part of what's wrong with the system. And with like Richard's story or the Exonerated Five, it's like very, very easy to feel for them. Um, but for people who may not be innocent, but are just as much victims because of like their socioeconomic background, how do you suggest that like this movement or like the criminal justice reform movement kind of works to be like more inclusive and highlight those stories a lot more? Because it's, it's a lot harder. Yes, so um, I, was, I was exonerated in 2012 and I started Miles of Freedom. And so basically Miles of Freedom, our mission at Miles of Freedom is to support individuals, families, and communities impacted by incarceration. Because we understand that really the only way to, to start the change is to interject the narrative. The narrative must change. I was telling, talking with Fizz and thanked him for uh, inviting us to the table to be a part of the narrative. There are stories to your point of people that's been overly sentenced, you know, that, you know, the system has stripped so much away from them, even though they did commit a crime. Okay, hey, but what are we doing as taxpayers? Are we holding the system accountable if we're taxpayers? I think that there's a lot that we can do. Um, but really identifying those organizations out there that's really in this work, researching them, and how can you support them and get their word out there? Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Hi. So thank you very much uh, for everything you do. Um, just this brings to mind, there's a Hebrew saying that says, roughly translated is, if you save one soul, you save the, the whole world. <laughs> so you have saved the whole world many times over, mm. which is amazing. Um, Kind of following, you know, following uh, the previous question, uh, what I wanted to ask is, um, so you work to um, promote organizations that you know aid with with the causes that, that you uh, that you target. Uh, is there work that you do or other organizations do to lobby government? Because uh, I mean, all these changes, you know, some changes, you know, I can see the government, you know being very reluctant to change, but maybe some things are a little easier. For example, organizations like Centurion could be state-sponsored, right? I mean, and that doesn't have to scare anyone, right? That Just having, me. <laughs> right? Ha right? Having, having the taxpayers actually fund uh, these kinds of reviews, right? Which, you know, uh, don't, doesn't necessarily imply culpability by the prosecutors. I'm sure they wouldn't like that. Um, so can you speak to that? I'm not sure I exactly understand the question, but uh, what? Questions of uh, legislation, organizations that's in the legislative field. Oh, yeah. Well, there are um, certainly movements afoot that we support, but with Centurion alone, we have picked our lane, which is to try and pull people out of prison. And we, we're certainly open to speaking, like we support uh, New Jersey's new governor set up a conviction review unit that we're part of and we're helping with and we're um, concerned about because we want it to succeed, not only just through this governor, but 
um, um, for future, uh, you know, legisl legislators. Um, I think conviction review units, if they really work across this country, could help a lot with um, people who have been overly sent. It's not just about innocence. It can also be about people that were overly sentenced. Um, and and the, the organization, as I said, we've picked our lane. But um, there are certainly, uh, I see a new movement in a lot of these innocence organizations that have been doing DNA ca cases. Well, they're running out of DNA cases. So what they're doing now is policy. And the policy work they're doing is incredibly important that has to do with bad science and, um, and again, over-sentencing, over-prosecution. And we're beginning to talk about prosecutor accountability, but that's an unbelievable uphill battle. Thank you, that's actually a little mm -hmm. encouraging. <laughs> Thanks. Right. I think we have time for only one quick question, but then I'm sure afterwards, if you guys would like to entertain questions uh, casually, we can do that as well. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned earlier that the states are making it harder to exonerate people because they want DNA evidence and they're just making these new laws. Um, but this day and age, we're in um, age of technology, um, so I would assume there would be more methods for people to um, prove their innocence. So we have tracking systems and all those kinds of things. Would you say that technology is helping in any way, or is it just not being considered at all? Technology is probably helping in... Um, in the ability to review certain kinds of science, um, like gunshot residue and things like that. But overall, um, an awful lot of the cases don't have a scientific element, um, which makes it um, that, that we're relying on um, witnesses to come forward, people who lie to trial, um, um, uncovering documents that were withheld from the defense and that were hidden. And so and those things take a long time, but certainly science is our friend, but it also is, makes it more difficult for organizations like ours that are um, have very few cases where we are relying on science to um, prove somebody innocent. I'm sorry I'm not more optimistic. Go ahead. But, but keep in mind this here. For a system, for a state, for an entity to accept a wrongful incarceration, they are accepting fault as well. And that's what I says. We don't want to accept fault. If a court says he's innocent, that means somebody else didn't do their job. And now when a person is released innocent, the states are, have to compensate them. So now it's not really about innocence or guilt, it's talk about money. And so that's why there are barriers in place to place blocks on people that are innocent because that's a bill now. I don't care about he's innocent, who's gonna pay, who's gonna pay for this fault that was done? So it's a bigger argument than just the stopping, if that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you. We are at our time today. Thank you so much for doing all the work that you do, thank and you. thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. 
To discover more thought-provoking content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle, at talks at Google. Talk soon.